This is Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly Cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible! Moonlight One Best Picture! Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us. And music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Could have run that as the open. open. For a while, Crazy Rich Asians has the airborne, happy preposterousness of a good screwball comedy. Those first 60 minutes or so are a treat. Lighthearted, sure-handed, zippy. That's a Mark Feeney of the Boston Globe. I've finally seen Crazy Rich Asians, one of the films we'll be reviewing this time on Cinephile. Thanks, as always, for checking us out. And thank you to Robert Townsend. Listen back to the interview he did with us last week. Thought he was terrific. Really funny, insightful, good dude. And uh, thrilled that he was able to make some time for us. And thank you to our friend Carlton Gillespie for hooking that up. As always, give us some love on iTunes, rank and review. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. I'm into all of that kind of thing. In fact, I was even reading some of the recent reviews people had posted. We only have one in September, but there's a couple in August. And uh, it was very nice. The guy said, love your pop. You said you want feedback. Even if it's negative, I said, yeah, please do. He says, well, I didn't like your uh, father's son list. Uh, you didn't include what dreams may come. The Robin Williams film. He said it's a good father-daughter story. Uh, and he also said a great film with Rachel McAdams called About Time, which I've never seen. So, sure, we'll add those to listen. Also, great top ten movies. Check those out. And thank you for making comments. Because, uh, like I said, that's how we keep things rolling here. For Maple Leafs, how I rank my movies. Rank it out of five stars. Let me know what you like. Let me know what you don't like. I'll take it all. Before we get rolling, I got this package here. I was so happy. As you know, it's Oscar movie season now. going to get screeners. You know, it's big, big uh, manila envelope here. And it says, uh, I just opened this minutes ago, Adnan Verk and ESPN Films. I've included the first act of a screenplay titled American Lowlife. I've worked on the 164 pages of the final script for some time. I've described this film as a caper story that takes place in a small town using football as a means of motivation for both hero and villain. He goes on to describe the story more. <laughs> My hope is that yourself and ESPN Films is willing to help make a movie like American Lowlife. So this gentleman sent me a screenplay. We're now at the point here in Cinephile, people think I have enough juice that I'm actually producing films. They think that I am somehow involved with ESPN films, that I'm going to read this, I'm going to green light it. I'm, I'm going to just go ahead and we're going to pick up the option on this. I'm going to talk to, I'll get Connor Shell on the phone right now. We won an Oscar for OJ. Now we're going to get one for American Low Life. Very good title. Thank you, Richard, for sending it my way. Next time, send some screeners. Had a busy little stretch. I know Dan's been busy. Rich has been busy. Sometimes you're busy. You need a little change. I was having trouble sleeping recently. So as I said in the pod, I went and watched Insomnia. Was feeling overwhelmed, chaotic by the life I had. So I gave myself a case of Vertigo. 60th anniversary of Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo, which is one of the great masterpieces of all time. Hadn't seen it in a while, so I hunkered down and gave myself a couple hours respite. And God, what a movie. Exquisitely shot. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who knows Hitchcock's work and the cinematography and the camera work is so detailed. But that story hits you like a sledgehammer. And here's why you should rewatch movies. Because, you know, oftentimes when you rewatch a movie, I think there's a greater likelihood if you rewatch a movie that you saw a decade or two decades ago that you won't like it as much. Meaning if you watch Goonies again, there's a greater likelihood you're going to go, this wasn't as good as I remembered it when I was 12. But it's a rarity, and that's why I give extra points to a movie like Vertigo, that when I saw it when I was 22, I said, yeah, it's a very good movie. I can see why people like it. 
especially film geeks. And now when I see it, I'm 40 and I go, man, what a movie. And I understand why it reaches a different level. For those who haven't seen Vertigo, the story is this. Uh, it's about a detective who suffers from a case of vertigo after he sees someone fall to their death as he was trying to help him, um, you know, outside in the, in the ethos of police work. So he sees a guy fall to his death while he's like, you know, hanging on to a building. And obviously that gives the guy severe vertigo. So he has to leave the police force. He then gets a job from a friend of his who says, can you tell my wife? I think she's being channeled by the spirit of someone else. Because I know it sounds kooky, but she's doing stuff that this woman, Carlotta Velez, did like decades ago, set in San Francisco. And the sequence where Jimmy Stewart is following her around, I remember when I saw it in my 20s, I was like, this part's pretty boring. Like, I don't understand this part. Like, he could have just chopped this part out. There's no dialogue. It's like five minutes of a guy following another woman. Now when I watch it, I go, God, this could have been like 20 minutes. It's so well done because he shows the guy falling in love with her by being a voyeur, which is, of course, a thing that Hitchcock's done before with, with Rear Window. But when you're watching the show, like he's, yeah, that's why he's falling in love with her, by following her on what she's doing. Ends up saving her life. Because she thinks that she's this other woman who commits suicide, saves her life. Now he falls in love with her. She's falling in love with him. And then she ends up running away from him, but says to him before they go to this clock tower, you know, just know this wasn't part of the plan. This is, and he's like, what do you you mean? Like, I'll save you. I'll protect you. Like, I know you're fighting these spirits, but I'm here with you. She runs away, jumps, plunges to her death. So this is about an hour 14 and you're like, oh my God. And this is one of my favorite parts is the doctor, when he's describing, when the doctor is describing his ailment is telling his friend Midge, who's an interesting secondary character. They were once together at one point, which the movie is very subtly mentions, the fact that Jimmy Stewart's character is single. And he once says to this character, Midge, hey, weren't we engaged one time? Okay, you know, I'm still available. And she gives him this great look. It's so subtle. But anyways, that's his best friend, this woman. And the doctor says he's suffering from an acute case of melancholia. I'm like, well, that's not exactly a medical term. But yes, he's depressed. He's a broken heart. And he's suffering from all this guilt. And then one day he sees a woman that looks just like the woman that he fell in love with. And this is where the movie just goes to a different level. And he just, he just, he's begging her to take her out to dinner. He's like, you look like this woman that I know. And she's just like, I don't understand. Like what? He's like, can I, can I just spend some time with you? Like, I just want to be around you. Which for anybody who's ever been in love, like that's what that feeling is like. I just, I just like being in your space. And that's what he's saying. I just, I just, you remind me. And she's like, she died, didn't she? He's like, let's just, let's just get dinner. Like I'll buy dinner. And she's like, okay. As soon as he leaves and the voiceover comes, she's writing a note. It is the same woman. And this was a plot that was done by this man to kill his wife. So he hires this woman to look like his wife, fall in love with Jimmy Stewart. And then when he's running up the stairs, because she knows that, you know, he knows that he suffers from vertigo, he will not be able to get her to the top. The husband is already there with his dead wife, throws her off the building, and then takes this woman and, you know, finds another spot and knowing that Stewart will not get to the top. Is that, is that, any of that make sense, Dan Stanzik? I've never been more confused in this podcast <laughs> in my entire life. I feel like we should stop tape starting again from the beginning. So he suffers from vertigo. He's asked by his buddy to take this case of following his wife, but his actual wife, he murders. So she's at the top of the clock tower with him, and he throws her off the building once the fake wife who he's hired gets to the top of the building. But of course, Jimmy Stewart has vertigo, so he never gets to the top. He never sees this happen. But the movie now reveals to us what has happened. So now she's back in his life, but she doesn't look like the ex-wife. She looks like herself, which is a brunette, but she has similar features, et cetera. So he wants to have dinner with her. So they start hanging out. They start talking this and that. And this is where it just gets like different levels of creepy. Because then he wants to buy her the dress that the wife used to wear. So like now he's like cloning her. He wants her to be the exact image of the idealized woman that he fell in love with. And she knows this. She goes, you're just, you want me to be replacing the woman who died. Like this is so weird. Even though it is the same woman. (laughs) I I think I'm following now. (laughs) Yeah. 
And so, but she realizes that he's so in love with her and this other woman, which is the same woman, that she's like, all right, fine. So she, so she wears, she puts on like a business suit from it's fine. And the best scene of the movie, it's the best scene ever in a Hitchcock film. Cause this is the true level of his obsessiveness. As he's saying, listen, you gotta fix your hair like this. You gotta wear your earrings like this. And she's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, listen, it's not that big a deal. Like, just do this for me. Like, I've done a lot for you. Like, I've been taking you out. I'm just asking, it's like a guy telling her, just dress up for me, right? Just put some lingerie on. I don't ask for a lot. Just one night, okay? So she's asking, just, just dress up for me. And when she comes out of the room, it's the most exquisite look of romantic pain you'll ever see. Cause when he sees her, it's like that love of his life is brought back to life. It's just very diabolical. And when she comes out, there's this green halo which is meant to be kind of the neon sign of the hotel, but really it's this dreamlike effect because it's like this woman who was dead has now been brought back to life. For God's sakes, the guy's Frankenstein. Like he literally has created this woman again and she's back. And what makes it so powerful is that it's the most confessional Hitchcock ever was because that character was basically being him because he was throughout his life very manipulative, very cold and very chilling towards women, especially that idealized icy blonde woman, which you see so often in his films. And so it's amazing to think you've got a director working at the peak of his powers in terms of sets and choreography and cinematography and a story that's bizarre and creepy and terrifying and suspenseful, but also making his most personal and, as I said, most confessional film. Uh, the Martin Scorsese masterclass that I took, Marty breaks down one of the scenes of Vertigo when he first sees her, which is about a minute and a half. But Marty explains it beautifully, the red background and how... Uh, Hitchcock works with the different lenses and camera shots. Very famous shot to show Jimmy Stewart's vertigo. You physically move the camera back, but you zoom in at the same time. So it gives you that disorienting feeling. Scorsese did it most famously in Goodfellas when Jimmy Conway and Henry Hill sit down at the diner. We're right where Henry knows that Jimmy's now going to try to kill him. He offers him that assignment. He was the first time ever Jimmy told me to go do something. Just to call attention to the scene, Scorsese tracks back with the camera, but zooms in as well, which gives you that very cool disorienting look. You see it all the time now in movies. But compressed zoom. What's that? It's a compressed zoom. Yeah, compressed yeah. zoom. By new password, know the technical term. But, um, man, Vertigo's a great film. I, I messaged Ty Burr. I don't know if we're going to get him. He's a great film critic for the Boston Globe. And I sent him an email, like mid-July, coming to pod. And he got back to me like two weeks later. And he was like, sorry, I was on vacation. I missed this. I'm like, listen, I'd love you to come on at the end of September. So he hasn't got back to me again. Maybe he just replies like once a month. But Ty Burr had the best line ever about Vertigo. He said, if there's ever been a better movie about a man in love, I haven't seen it. He loves Vertigo as much as I do. So hopefully we can get him on the pod at some point. But if you look at any of these AFI lists or best films of all time, Vertigo always ranks very high. And uh, for good reason, because it's an incredible film. So hopefully you'll check it out. And hopefully you weren't too confused by my description. Maybe because you were confused, now you're like, I gotta go see this movie now. I gotta, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, how long is this movie? Two hours and eight minutes. Oh, that's not bad. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll check it out. If you check out Vertigo, but you might break my heart because remember when I still remember when, when you watch Mean Streets, I'm like, what'd you think? You're like, underwhelming. I'm like, are you? <laughs> well, you build these movies up and that one was probably groundbreaking at the time. Right. And now all the things that were so new in that movie are so overdone and commonplace for me now that this, this I didn't get the same effect that you did. Right. I hope it doesn't happen with Vertigo. Passport, your level of love for Vertigo. It's high. Um, it's, it's that psycho, uh, North by Northwest. They're just, that era of Hitchcock Oof. is probably hands down one of the best pieces of cinema history ever. Cannot say that better myself. That's a mic drop from Rick Passmore. Crazy Rich Asians is currently in theaters. So I was not crazy to watch this movie, even though I am Asian. Not quite rich. We're doing okay. But, um, I said, I might as well go see. Yeah. <laughs> Stancic wants me to say that I am rich. No, no, we're doing all right. So, um, I'm a crazy Asian. 
I'm, I'm a neurotic Asian. How's that? I'm a neurotic Asian, so I went and saw crazy rich Asians. But I was very reluctant because I said I don't like romantic comedies, so I'm not going to like this movie. So why am I seeing this movie? Well, you have a podcast called Cinephile. There's nothing else out. You have to review a movie. Okay, I'll go see it. And my wife really wanted to see it, and she loved it. So great. Target market is good. Young females in on this movie. At one point, I was starting to get so frustrated, and I like I'll start shifting. I'm like, I'm gonna go get a hog and dogs bar. Like, I'm at least I'm gonna I'm gonna eat an ice cream cone. I'm gonna have some calories. I'm gonna enjoy it because the the movie is empty calories. It's just a sweet confectionery of uh, dripping gooiness. So I might as well have some ice cream to go down with it to wet my palate because that is fitting for the movie. Listen, here's why it's notable. It's incredibly diverse, and that's so nice to see an Asian audience finally being taken care of. But it has all the hallmarks, all the tropes of a romantic comedy. You have the uh, overbearing matriarch. You have the sassy best friend. You've got the soundtrack of romantic ballads. You, of course, have an uplifting happy ending. And that doesn't mean any of this is wrong, but I, I just felt like it was so formulaic. The freshness is only in that these faces are Asian people, and it's not the usual that we've seen in the past. So I give it credit in terms of being fresh, in terms of the delivery, and I should point out also location. I don't know anything about Singapore. Now I'd like to go to Singapore because that, that they use that locale very expertly, which most romantic comedies do well. Use your surroundings to make it more romantic. And because these people are rich, obviously they have these lavish surroundings. It's very plush. Uh, so I did like the decor, and it's well shot and everything, but Om Young Masuk, I did the uh, Carrie Chow podcast. My buddy Om, who also loves going to see movies, he also agreed with me because I would give it two and a half. Uh, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs at a four. He said, I would also give it two and a half. He goes, I didn't think the, the two leads had enough chemistry, which is a hell of a damning indictment of a romantic comedy. You better make sure that these two get along really well. I was like, you should give it one if you didn't like the chemistry. Henry Golding, very handsome guy. Constance Wu, love her. Fresh off the boat TV show. Um, and she's obviously very uh, endearing and charming, which you have to be in these movies. But he didn't buy their chemistry. He also didn't think there's a pivotal scene at the end. With Constance Wu, because I don't think she nailed that scene, but I actually thought she was pretty good in that scene. So because of the fact it's well acted and it looks good and it's sweet and it certainly serves its target market, which is people who love romantic comedies, I would give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Having said that, it's probably more of a two Maple Leaf for me because it's not a movie that I would see and I would never watch it again. And I don't think I would recommend it to any of my buddies. Like, hey, let's go watch Crazy Rich Asians tonight. So I apologize for uh, seeing it through my own prism, which raises another issue. Stanzik. Should I be reviewing these movies for the general populace, or is this purely my appreciation of these movies? That's an interesting question, something we debate on sports radio all the time. Normally, you do it for the audience, but this one is your podcast, and anyone's tuning into a radio, so you, you target the mass audience, the mass appeal. Right. But this, they're clicking on it for you and your opinions. Okay. So I don't think you're serving the broad audience. You're already serving some section of the movie geeks here yeah. with a movie podcast. So I think you just go total self-serving, and leave the romantic comedies for another podcast. Well said. How about RBG? Much more in line with Dan Stanzik's purview, or at least taste in films. Uh, it was on CNN on Labor Day. So it was perfect. Uh, if you'll recall, Alec Bloom was with us in the past. And I said to him, listen, I just cannot get off the couch to go spend 12 bucks to watch a Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary. God love the great Supreme Court justice. And then thankfully, CNN put it on TV. I'm like, perfect. Hey, we save money. It's at home. Convenient. Awesome. And uh, I enjoyed it. I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs only because I didn't know a ton about RBG. Uh, listen, I know she's a liberal Supreme Court justice. I know that uh, feminists applaud her. I know that she's a trailblazer, but did not know all the details. So first and foremost, the documentary has to do what? It has to be informative. And I thought it was an informative documentary. And I learned about why uh, her impact is so strong among the legal system in America. Plus, it's got to be entertaining. And I thought they did a good job of interweaving scenes of her like, you know, exercising, working out, and the whole notorious RBG, which has become this fad, of course, playing off of notorious B.I.G. And she even comments in it in one of these interviews. She's like, no, no, I started seeing these shirts popping up of 
Notorious B.I.G. And they're like, do you think you have a lot in common with Biggie Smalls? And she's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're both icons. And yeah, I, I think we're both New Yorkers. Sure. Like, okay. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Notorious B.I.G. An unlikely uh, tandem, but it's one that her uh, zealot, I mean, her fans are zealots. I should also point out, like, they've got people, people are just obsessed with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is just amazing. I mean, she's this 83-year-old New York Jewish woman. And people, I mean, there's there's coffee mugs over her, there's necklaces, there's T-shirts, there's sweaters, there's all this kind of stuff. So I thought it, it served its purpose as a documentary. It is a little dry, as you'd expect me about Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be. But I loved her husband, Marty. He's hilarious in it. You know, part of the documentary that I thought was fascinating is that it serves as a love story and this really strong union between husband and wife and a guy who had no issue in giving his wife the limelight. He was always pushing her to be the star. And he's got some great one-liners. Everyone keeps saying Marty was the outgoing one. He was funny. He cooked. Apparently, her cooking is dreadful. Uh, and she's the one who's more reserved and quiet and bookish, as you might expect. Uh, but he tells one great story. They went to see a Broadway show because she loves opera. It's a recurring theme. Ruth Bader Ginsburg loves opera. I think they went to see an opera show in Broadway. Maybe it was a Broadway show. And he goes, there was such a huge applause. Everyone just, they just loved her so much. And without missing a beat, Marty turned to her because he was a tax lawyer previously. He was a guy, I guess you didn't realize there was this conference of tax lawyers here hanging out Broadway. So he's, he's very quick with a quip and very entertaining. So I think if you like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, here's the primary complaint with it. Nothing negative about her. Like you're literally just pointing to everything like Ruth Bader Ginsburg is like a hero. I'm like, okay, I got it. Listen, strong woman, idealized look at her, but I would like to, as a true documentary, you have to have like, it's like watching a 60 minutes piece. You always watch the first five minutes, they lionize them, then they always put a little, you know, criticisms of them, and they try to bring it back full circle. And in this documentary, I'm like, okay, so what's the knock against her? That she's too liberal? But they don't even say that. Like, even even the conservatives on part of the Supreme Court are speaking positively about her and saying that even if they disagree with her philosophically, they still like her as a person. So I don't think you need to be nasty, but I think you have to figure a full portrait. I'll give you one. Alec Baldwin, it was a great 60 Minutes piece by Morley Safer. And the way he did it was, he goes, for a guy who's so smart, who's so talented, who's so educated, he can be awfully stupid. And then he shows the phone call where he called his daughter rude, thoughtless little pig. And Baldwin kind of pushed back against him as well. So I'm like, that's a great feature. and It's a great line to entrance people. There's never that feeling. It's other than just hagiography hey, towards Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What do you think it's like to be married to a Supreme Court justice? <laughs> like, you're never winning an argument, right? We have uh, we have a TV director here, Eric Disher. Do you know Disher? I, know, I love Disher. He's, yeah, he's married to a psychologist. He goes, oh. I've never won an argument with my wife, but I always feel better about myself afterwards. <laughs> Man, psychology be tough. She's constantly like, listen, I think your narcissism is overwhelming our family. And I go, God, listen, if I want to navel gaze, just let me do that, please. But yeah, God, a Supreme Court, you have no chance. Like, there's zero chance. She's outwitting you every single time. RBG, two and a half Maple Leafs. I also saw, and I'll make this one quick, Victorian Abdul, which is with Judy Dench, came out earlier this year. We'll give that one, two Maple Leafs. It's a story about the queen and her relationship with this Indian servant who she ends up getting from India to then take care of her. I mean, listen, if you really like period pieces or if you love Dame Judi Dench, it's always worth the price of admission. I would recommend it, but I'll give it to Maple Leafs. It's fine. I don't know how accurate the story was. It's well acted. It's sweet, but slight and also quite simplistic. So those are the reviews of the films this time. Now it's time to turn our attention towards Tom Berenger, our special guest here on Cinephile. Has your company outgrown QuickBooks? Are shared spreadsheets, manual processes, and legacy systems costing you time and money? Now is the time to move your business to the cloud. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you can save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or even your phone. 
Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, when you go to netsuite.com slash cinephile now. Download their free Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth guide today at netsuite.com slash cinephile. netsuite.com slash cinephile. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to GEICO. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. And a real pleasure to be joined by Tom Berenger. He's the star of a new film called American Dresser, which will be in theater September 21st. Tom, thanks so much for the time today on Cinephile. Well, thank you. We'll get into the film in just a second, which I just watched last night. But hey, listen, I tell people I'm talking to Tom Berenger. What do you think they want to talk about? One of the greatest films of all time and your brilliant performance in Platoon. For my money, it's my favorite war movie and, and your performance still endures. We had Willem Dafoe on the podcast last year and he said the last time he saw the film, all he thought of it was you. He said, you know, Tom's performance really stood out to me. So I'm just curious, what are your remembrances of the film when you think about Platoon? What comes to mind for you? Uh, oh, boy, that, well, that's, that, it's all still pretty vivid to me. I think I, I remember almost every scene. I can't say that I remember all the lines, although there are some people that do. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but, um, well, you know, like Keith, uh, he... You know, he and I never really had a scene together in Platoon unless I was addressing the entire Platoon. We never had a one-on-one through the whole film. And uh, and then here we are doing this one so many years later together, uh, and we're playing two Vietnam Army vets, which is interesting. Uh, he was the last guy I saw in the Philippines before I left and went home. Everybody else was gone. And I went down and had a beer with him in his room. I heard he was still at the hotel, said goodbye, and then that was it, headed home the next morning. That's very cool how that all comes full circle. You know, you mentioned certain scenes or certain lines you may not remember, but the scene that I think is so compelling is where you say to those guys, Charlie Sheet and them, like, you know, y'all think this blank is reality. I am reality. Do you remember that scene specifically? Yep. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I, I asked Oliver, I said, could I have these little Christmas lights behind my head? He goes, yeah, yeah, that's good. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay, that's where I'd like to say that line. <laughs> that scene, Some I met a waiter one time. He said, I, I'm in an acting class. I did that scene. I went, you did it in an acting class? He goes, yeah. I went, oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, yeah, it's a good theater piece. Yeah, you're right. You could do that as a monologue. And how did you find working with Oliver Stone? I mean, we know what a giant of cinema he is now, but how did you find him there on set? I loved it. I mean, first of all, I thought it was great that he was a vet. I knew when I read it, I, I told my agent, I go, hey, this guy is a vet, isn't he? I mean, it sounds like he was really there. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, he's an infantryman. He's a grunt. Oh, yeah, yeah, I thought so. I think that really helped a lot. But, uh, you know, Oliver's he's, he's kind of like our Hemingway. 
I think, anyway. <clears throat> I see a lot of Hemingway in him. <laughs> <laughs> in what respect? Masculine, man of action, that kind of stuff? I, yes, yes. And um, he he actually he's, he's lived it. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, his at Wall Street, his dad was a Wall Street broker in New York. So it, it's like he... He knows a lot of the ground that he's writing about. And now we're going to see if Oliver can box and how well he can fish. That's our next goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and hunt big game in Africa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We're talking with Tom Berenger. His new yeah. film is called American Dresser. I encourage everyone to go check it out in theaters. Listen, Tom, we're here at ESPN. We love baseball. We love Major League. Jake Taylor is one of the most iconic performances of all time. Um, what do you what, what do you got on Major League? Give me any story you want because I I love that film and still treasure it. Well, I I tell you something interesting. Yeah, uh, that I I think it'll be around absolutely forever. You know, kind of like Pride of the Yankees. Um, you know that movie will always be around. Uh, it's it's sort of uh, number one. It's baseball. And interesting thing, I was in a coffee shop, little coffee shop in Connecticut. One morning, I was sitting there having a coffee and reading a paper or something, and three guys walk up to me. One was a grandpa- was a grandfather. The other one was a father who played a couple years of pro baseball, I think with the Yankees, and then his son. So I, I was sitting there, and they were all major league, major league, and I'm looking at their three, three generations. And I said, you know what? Long after I'm dead, and all of you, and even him, people will still be watching this movie. I said, that's kind of nice. It's very rewarding. (laughs) (laughs) And they agreed. (laughs) How about the chemistry on set? Guys like Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes, like we can see the hijinks on screen. What was it like offset? Pranks being pulled? Uh, It was was pretty close, yeah. It it was very close. I mean, it's a really, really, I mean, really nice guys. And and it's very funny, you know. I I mean, Corbin Birdson is hysterical. He had me in stitches. I, I just, uh, I recommended him for another movie I did, and um, and he played the part, played like my business partner. Roger and the Dorn. director, who was German, said, I don't know him. I said, you got to meet him. And the director's assistant goes, oh, yeah, he's great. Uh, but she knew him somehow. And so he met him. I, I happened to walk by his office, and I heard them laughing inside. And I go, how long has he been in there? They go, they've been in there an hour. This is the way it's been going. Listen to him. I go, oh, oh, oh I think he's got the job. <laughs> and I still see Corbin quite a bit. I run into him all the time. Inception, Tom, thought you were terrific in that movie. You know, Christopher Nolan's a great director. What's it like working with him on set and a guy like Leonardo DiCaprio? Um, well, Leonardo DiCaprio was a total gentleman. And um, and I, I liked that. You know, I respected that. And uh Christopher Nolan is like, first of all, he's always on the set right by the camera when it rolls, so so it's old school. You know, he's not like in some other room looking at a little screen. He's got that in his hand so he can see the composition and the camera moves, but uh, he's right there. You know, he's right there next to the camera like the old days, like it was when I started before they had TV assist. And... um, He's very, he's very smart. He has the whole, the whole movie in his head. It's already cut, probably in his head. Which on that kind of movie, 
you go, how does he remember all this, even though he wrote it? How does he remember it? Because it, it was a little confusing for us at times. We had to constantly know where we were at in the story because they're dreams. And dreams are weird. Um, and he's, he kind of strikes me as the kind of guy that probably, I don't know this for sure, but I said, he's got to be a great chess player. He's just got that kind of mind. Very smart guy. But if you're, if you're explaining, Tom, Inception to someone, do you find it tricky to explain it to somebody? Or are you now at the level that you can find that you can disseminate the plot fairly easily? I, I, I still can't. I, <laughs> I, when I saw it uh, for the first time, it was in Los Angeles, like a premiere there, I guess, and, and the young Irish actor that I played kind of like his uncle or protege. And I asked him, I said, did you, did you understand this? <laughs> and he said, well, I saw it in London and I also saw it in Dublin. I went, oh, okay, so you get it? He goes, yeah. I went, all right. <laughs> yeah. I huh. said, because my mind is just um, <laughs> scrambled here. <laughs> But I guess he 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 finally got it on the third one. Yeah, once you do it three times, I guess you can figure it out. American Dresser is the film. Love seeing you on a motorcycle. I love the chemistry with you and Keith David. Reminded me of Easy Rider. Uh, just seeing you guys on on your bikes and riding away. I love the scene in the bar where you you just you offer to buy a beer for everybody in there just to diffuse the tension, and it ends up being a really sweet story as well. Tell everybody yeah. about American Dresser. Uh, yeah, it was well, it was fun doing that. And it, the weird thing is that. Um, you know, Keith, besides being the last guy I saw in the Philippines before I went home, um, and we were the last two guys left, although we didn't have a lot of scenes one-on-one with each other, if any. But um, it's interesting, the last guy I saw, I saw him once again in uh, New York when we did press, and then didn't see him again all those years until we did this. But it was nice, you know. It was kind of like two old comrades working together. And it, and it had that kind. Of, it had a sort of that sort of a what Cassie Sundance kid kind of bitchy humor on the road. You know, a little bit of that, and you know, Jack Nicholson and Randy Quaid and stuff. And um, the last detail, that kind of humor, road humor. <laughs> yeah, I love Bruce Dern in the film as well. He's great. Oh yeah, he was that scene with him. That's like my favorite scene. <laughs> it's just uh, character is just so bizarre he's just like weird highway kind of guy you know he's just where's this guy from but he was he was great he was brilliant and I, and I really really liked that scene well it's terrific the movie is called American Dressers Tom Berenger I cannot thank you enough for the time and reminiscing about such great films as you've made in the past best of luck with the movie man we really appreciate it Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks again to Tom Berenger. That was uh, a lot of fun. And I gave a pregnant pause because that's what he was doing, too. Maybe a little tricky for me as an interviewer because, as you guys know, I'm very animated. I want to jump in all the time. But when you're listening, you got to let a guy finish his statement. We do not have an everyman or an in defense of Uh, because the boys are pretty busy right now. But Dan finally saw Black Klansman. Please give us your review. 
I don't have a long review, but it's very good. It's probably the best movie of the year. You have yes. it number one, correct? Yes. It's worth seeing for everyone, regardless of your political affiliation. It made me angry at the end, but it is funny. There's some jarring things, and it's almost like if you hear the plot, you're like, there's no way that's based on a true story, and I still can't believe it. But I would recommend that everyone see it. Ricky, have you seen Black Landsman yet? I have. And what did you think of it? I'm right on there with, with uh, Dan. It is my top movie of the year so far, um, right behind A Quiet Place. Um and same thing too, like that ending and no spoilers for you, but what, what Spike did with the ending, uh, was it necessary? No, but did it drive home the point he was making? Absolutely. And it's, and it's perfect spike and he's returned to return to form and absolutely love the film. Black Klansman, go see it. My brother was shocked at it. Number one. And now he's definitely going to see it because he loves you guys. So Dan and Rick run it, which raises the other issue. Jim Stanzik is still listening to the pod, which I found astounding. Big time. Oh, yeah. We haven't, we haven't got any feedback from Jimmy lately, so I've heard he'd petered off now, but he's still on. Uh, he's, he's locked in. He's locked in. He's not criticizing my reviews like your brother is. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll watch a comic book movie and do a review coming up. Who knows? He'll see Black Klansman now that you guys both liked it. Rick also saw The Happy Time Murders, which I'll admit was an option. I was like, well, I got to see something before the next cinephile. And then I saw the critics destroying it, and I said, well, I'm going to pass on this one. But Rick, God love him, went and saw it. What did you think? Well, I, I got to say this. As a puppeteer outside of my duties here at ESPN I'll give it the satisfaction that the puppetry was brilliant Brian Henson and, and crew like obviously they know what they're doing um however the script was very weak and it was the downfall of the film they played this noir type of private eye detective movie from the 40s I love the theme of it I loved what they wanted to do it just fell very flat because they were trying so hard to say, yes, this is a puppet movie. No, it's not for kids. And they really went off that deep end. And they had some allegories about puppets being lesser citizens. And there there was some back and forth with, you think of like, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where the cartoons and the humans lived together, but they were cohesive. This one where it's like, puppets are only meant to sing and dance for the humans, and they're addicted to sugar, and that's all they do. They just consume sugar all day, and they're they're second-class citizens. And there's very interesting moments where they could have expanded on this and made a, a deeper story, but they really didn't want to do it. They just wanted to basically make a parody of a noir with puppets and humans. And I, I the the glowing things I can say about it are Bill Beretta, who's the puppeteer, and did um did Phil Phillips, the detective that's partnered with uh, Melissa McCarthy's character, was fantastic. Not just in puppeteering, but also acting. You people don't realize that you have to act when you're puppeteering. You know, it, it just comes up through your hand and out through, you know, a module. Uh, and then Maya Rudolph absolutely slayed. She's hysterical. But she's not given enough screen time for what, or she's given the right amount of screen time for what she's doing, but you wish you saw her more because of how good she actually is. Um, all the side characters were just kind of one off and very one note and just basically playing a parody role of what their characters were supposed to be. If they would have given a little more care to the script, this would have been a two and a half to three Maple Leaf film. Instead, it's sitting like a one and a half Maple Leaf just because it's so just boring, essentially, at the end of the day. Like, there's some really good laughs in it and some funny stuff, but at the end of the day, it's just, it's not an engaging film. And by the time it was over, you're just kind of like, ah, oh, that, that, that was kind of upsetting. Yeah, see, I hate that whenever you have a chance. You know what I mean? Like, when you say, hey, there's, there's real promise here, but the, you, you booted away the idea. 
Like a bad idea is a bad idea. You can't you can't absolve anyone of that. You can't salvage that. When an idea actually is like, this has promise, but the execution was so poor, that gets frustrating. Yeah, and it wasn't even a technical execution or, or anything like that. It was just purely in the script, and the script, when you know when they shot the script how it was, and there's some ad-libbing going on for the jokes, but when it's just, it, it would have made a better, I would have I honestly would have watched a six-part Netflix series of this, half hour each, and allowed the characters to develop a little more than a essentially a hundred minute movie where you're just trying to make a point to say, yes, we're doing puppetry. Yes, we're doing it, you know, very mature and, and uh, grotesque in some ways, but puppets are still puppets. They're not humanoid or anything like that. How fascinating, by the way, is, is, is Rick Passmore, Dan, the fact that he is a puppeteer like this. We just, he just dropped that in there, by the way, he's he's a, he's a puppeteer. Fascinating is the right word. There's there's a lot of layers to Rick that you just you keep pulling the onion back and you're like, whoa, all right, okay. He's a video editor. He's also a filmmaker and he's a puppeteer. Do you play music as well, Ricky? You must play no, the I cannot play so you, music at all. Dan, you, ever, you ever played an instrument before, Dan? Oh, my mother made us all play the piano until oh. I think it was like kindergarten to sixth grade, and then we all got to stop. So Dan can hit us with some chopsticks. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I know, like, the first five notes of the Star Spangled Banner still. Watch out. I was going to say, if you want to just play us out of here with a little bit of uh, theme music. But until then, we'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.